falls. The forest holds its breath. Halloween, everyone. This is the Film and Water Podcast, part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I am your host, Rob Kelly. And for this uh, special Halloween episode, we have a double feature. First up, it's going to be me and Mike Gillis talking about George Romero's 1978 classic, Dawn of the Dead, followed by um, me and Richard Harlan Smith talking about 1976's Burnt Offerings, starring Oliver Reed and Betty Davis. So, uh, without further ado, why don't we just sit back and enjoy this talk with Mike Gillis about Dawn of the Dead. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. 
They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, accept the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. You may never get out of the room. It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center. One of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. We've got a war. I'm afraid. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. So, okay, Mike, you're back on the show, uh, and it was you who reached out to me to say you wanted to talk about George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Why do you love Dawn of the Dead so much? Well, I think it's a movie that has become underappreciated because I think for many years it was the zombie movie that people mentioned. But in a weird kind of way, I think it's become a victim of its own success because you can look at just the proliferation of so much zombie stuff out there. And you can make the argument that George A. Romero did not invent the zombie apocalypse. You could say that Richard Matheson wrote the book I Am Legend back in the 50s. But technically, those are vampires. And, you know, if there's anything nerds can do is we can nitpick. <laughs> but you look at the, the current modern landscape from, you know, like Shaun of the Dead, 28 Days Later, and just the huge success of both the TV show and the comic book of The Walking Dead. All of that stuff, all of the zombie mania, the zombie tropes, the zombie survival tactics, Max Brooks, you know, Mel Brooks's kid wrote a zombie survival handbook, World War Z, all this stuff. All of it has a common ancestor in this movie, Dawn of the Dead from 78. This one invented so much of the rules and the tropes and the general uh, style and ideas that go into every zombie story that's come out since. And I'm actually kind of new to zombie fiction. I've probably been a fan of it for just over a decade. And I think it was 28 Days Later was the first zombie movie that I saw. And I know there's somebody out there who's writing an email. That's not really a zombie movie. Well, they're not really, you know. <laughs> they're not zombies, zombie Mike. Movie. They're just it's, sick. Come on. They're infected with rabbit yeah, they're sick. things or something. It's, they're people that got turned into monsters because they got bitten. And they, society has fallen because too many of them have become monsters. So it's a zombie movie. Even the trailer said a new rail 
film of zombie movies or horror or something like that. Even they called it zombies in their trailer. So, you know, you can, you know what? Let's just agree to disagree on that. I I don't really care. It's a zombie movie, whatever. But all of this stuff comes back to Dawn of the Dead. Everything from the idea of shooting them in the head, bites will kill you and turn you into a zombie. The tradition that still goes to this day of just not saying the Z word. Uh, repurposing old buildings and barricading yourself inside of them. I mean, all the strategy stuff. The idea that zombies aren't the real monster, that other human beings are the ones that are capable. All of this stuff came from this movie. That uh, Night of the Living Dead, which was, my God, it was like a decade before this, 78, 68. Um, that's what kind of makes this series so interesting to me, is that each one of them is a different snapshot of the different decades in which they're made. And this one was made in the 1970s, and it really created an entire genre of horror that remarkably is still popular today. Yeah, there are not too many uh, film franchises in any genre you can think of where the first film was groundbreaking and then the second film is groundbreaking. You don't see a lot of that. I, I would argue then this is a franchise you and I have already talked about on Fire and Water is Alien, the Alien uh, franchise in that Aliens to me is just as influential a movie as Alien even though it's a completely different kind of movie, but they're both part of the same franchise. But yeah, Dawn of the Dead really does seem to be its own thing. And it's hard to, it's, sometimes it's, it's easy to remember that it's technically a sequel. I mean, it's a sequel in, in yeah. sort of name only, I guess, because it's not like any of the characters carry on. But it's the same idea of, okay, I mean, do you, I, I guess in your mind, you can always tell yourself, well, whatever the zombie apocalypse that's happening in Night of the Living Dead has just obviously gotten worse and worse and worse to the point where they're just all over the place by the time we get to Dawn of the Dead. Absolutely. I know in the first movie, it gave you the sense that it was this one horrible night. It never really explains the origin of this zombie plague. Uh, there's kind of a red herring. Even George A. Romero has said that the reasoning that they sort of throw out there about this probe that we had sent to Venus broke up in our atmosphere or something. He said that was straight out of red herring and that was not the real cause of it because I don't think the cause ever really matters. And I don't think we really want to know the answer to it because nothing is going to be satisfying because it's kind of ridiculous. This idea that dead bodies are going to get back up dead bodies of your neighbors and your relatives and your loved ones and start trying to eat you. And there's no scientific explanation that's going to make a moving corpse legitimate or real or realistic or anything so we just kind of go with it we skip past the explanation and get right back into the scenario this is what's happening you just sort of accept it and and you kind of move on from there and i think what makes dawn of the dead so interesting and i think every one of the romero films though you can make the argument that they've kind of gone off a cliff uh creatively and in terms of the actual the product itself in the last decade or so, because even Romero himself kind of came out of zombie retirement to make more zombie films, and I don't think they're quite as good as his classic films. But the, the fact is, is that there is an entire you know, genre of movies now that exist because of this guy, and all of them have this sort of social commentary dynamic to it. That Dawn of the Dead is essentially, when you get down to it, about four people who decide to abandon what's left of civilization as it's crumbling. That we already get into this scenario where there is a television reporter, the news agency's uh, helicopter pilot, and two SWAT team guys decide to say, you know, to hell with the world. We're not going to try to hold up what's left of this civilization. It's screwed. 
Forget those people. Let it all go to hell. We're going to find something for ourselves. We're going to abandon everyone else and essentially barricade ourselves in this temple that was built to sort of commercialism and material wealth. (laughs) Shopping mall, which at the time was a brand new thing. I mean, a shopping mall, which is this massive multi-story building that is full of all the food and expensive clothing and material electronics that you could ever want. And even as a skating rink, it's kind of crazy. Uh, somebody who is of this generation, you know, I guess you call them millennials, slightly younger than, than you or I, Rob, but uh, folks that are used to going to a mall now, it's kind of shocking how crazy this mall is. This mall has a gun store in it. <laughs> this mall has a supermarket. It has an ice rink. It has a video arcade, which you're used to seeing in a lot of these arcades, so maybe not as much nowadays. And it has a helicopter pad on top. And apparently, (laughs) though they kind of dance around it, it sounds like it has a nuclear generator. So to explain why the power lines can go down and they can continue to have power. But it's incredible. So they lock themselves in this just temple to wealth and gain and, and stuff. And the world kind of crumbles outside of it. You get only the sense of these broadcasts coming from outside that slowly go away until they realize how empty their lives actually are when they have nothing but stuff. So it's like an anti-mall, anti-consumerism movie when a mall was actually a new novel thing. And that's kind of incredible. Yeah, one of the uh, things I I appreciate when I watched it over again just a couple of weeks ago, anticipation for this, was like seeing all the real brands in the stores – uh, you know, as these zombies are walking around, and I think, did any of these companies approve of this? You know, I mean, do they want? I can't their, imagine their names connected with. I mean, I remember I see a zombie walk in front of a shop called East, and I remember I used to go to those as a kid with my parents, and I was like, does the shop called East really want to be associated with the scene of a biker chopping a zombie's head off? I I don't know, and I have to wonder about did, what were the releases like. I guess maybe if you were in the mall, you just. You didn't get any say, and it, was, it just depended on the people who ran the mall, and they gave permission, and that was the end of it. But in, in an age now where we're so focused on brand awareness and brand this and brand that, like I'm just trying to picture any major sort of company wanting to be involved in such a grisly little low-rent movie like this. Especially because this was – I mean, nowadays it's considered a classic, but in the time that it came out – this thing was released as unrated because it couldn't even make an R rating. That's how violent it is. Right, they wanted to give it an X. I mean, they were used to an R. Exactly. It would have been giving an X rating, which is like just the sign of death, meaning that you can't get almost any theater to carry your movie, and that nobody wants that. So it's better to just throw out the rating system completely, release it it as unrated, and just kind of own up to the fact that it's so scary that they couldn't even rate it so that it doesn't, of course, go into the same category as pornography, but still has that air of kind of like, oh, there's something just kind of alluring and forbidden about this movie. And I wonder about the product placement. I know that they actually had an agreement with a mall, the Monroeville Mall, which they actually filmed this in. And they filmed it at night while the mall, which was actually open at the time for their Christmas sale. <laughs> actually was going on and they would have to be out of there before uh the mall opened in the morning it opened pretty early and of course it takes what was it i think is it pittsburgh or is it wisconsin it's definitely one of the colder states this place was filmed i think it was pittsburgh it's pittsburgh so it was like freezing in the morning so the mall actually was a place that a lot of joggers would go to be able to get some exercise without freezing to death 
So any exterior shot you see where the parking lot is completely empty is like at five in the morning. So when you see that one zombie who's the fat guy in the swim trunks, that fat guy is walking around in like 20 to 30 degree weather painted with, you know, gray body paint and walking really, really slowly in nothing but swim trunks. <laughs> and uh, Tom Savini, who did the special effects for the movie, was so impressed by the fat guy in the swim trunk zombie that he brought him back for the climax and he gets shot in the head and falls into the fountain. <laughs> they just like he was just so impressed that this guy was so committed to continually walking slow in very little clothing in 20 degree weather that he's like, oh, this guy's great. We've got to keep using him. You know, there was uh, one of the things that uh, I I saw this many years ago for the first time, many, many years ago, back when I worked at a, at a video store. And I certainly enjoyed it. I, I don't think I was ready for the violence. And I certainly enjoyed that because, you know, I was like, oh, cool. This is really well done gore or whatever. And I, I, I recognized that it was a great movie. But I didn't take it, I don't want to say terribly seriously, because the movie has a lot of humor, and George Romero is not taking it terribly seriously in some cases. But I didn't take it terribly seriously because I didn't really believe in the whole idea that society would collapse. I, I you know, I mean, in the, the, in the opening scenes of the movie, the the TV broadcasters, there's chaos, and and you know, and I, as an as a as a younger person, I just sort of I guess thought, well, in case some horrible thing ever happened, we would be able to handle it. Well, I'm older now. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I've seen the chaos coming just from, you know, everyone trying to get Star Wars The Force Awakens tickets and see how fast mm. systems collapse for something like that. And I now kind of take it a little more seriously than I used to. I'm like, no, I, th I think maybe the whole thing would kind of collapse. Right? I mean, we take away if people lose their Internet for a couple of days, they lose their mind. So I thought if we ever did have a zombie attack, we would. It probably would be fairly realistic as to what is portrayed in this movie. Yeah, I'm kind of somebody who's a fan of zombie fiction, not in an aspirational way. I think there's kind of a scary zombie fan base out there, the would-be Daryl Dixons out there that really kind of fantasize about if only there weren't speeding laws and cops around that they could really be the person they were born to be. Right. Just kind of, well, basically, if we're going to be honest, it's guarding a pile of food with a shotgun, that that's the life you want. <laughs> but, I, you know... I don't want that. I mean, I sort of look at zombie fiction or any kind of apocalyptic fiction with kind of a Jane Goodall kind of vibe where I'm kind of fascinated by what people are when suddenly being a good person and being kind and following the rules and not killing your neighbor and not being willing to kill a neighbor and having things like a judicial system where, you know, if my neighbor is doing something I don't like, I have a nonviolent way of arbitrating and handling it and dealing with it. I can sue somebody. But in a zombie world, if somebody steals something I have, there are no cops to call. I'm going to have to handle it violently. And suddenly being a nice person and not being a paranoid lunatic and not being selfish is actually something that can get you killed. And it scares me that there's enough people out there that I think would adapt very well to that kind of moral <laughs> framework. And if you notice, kind of at the very beginning of the movie, there's this point where even the people at the news station kind of realize, okay, now, this is the moment right now where the shit is hitting the fan. It doesn't matter anymore. This building can't protect me. And they just start taking stuff. And there, there's a scientist talking to a talk show host about this uh, plague. 
which at this point seems to have been going on for about a few weeks. And the, the host keeps trying to ask him questions in sort of the world that we sort of exist now. And he's like, no, these things are dead. You have to kill them on sight. And the guy just kind of won't believe it, which again, plays into this idea that zombie fiction can't exist in a zombie movie. Otherwise, if people already have their zombie plans, we know exactly what a bloody, staggering person comes you know, towards right, us, what right. we're supposed to do, hit them with a shovel or whatever. And there's people that were just dying to hit one of their neighbors with a shovel. And the fact that there are people that refuse to sort of believe it, and when that shit hits the fan, people just start taking microphones right off of the desk of the, the talk show that is actually broadcasting. And they just start taking stuff. You see cops actually pouring, like, onto this boat, you know, with the idea of going to an island. What island? Any island. Yeah. And they just have nothing but guns and beer. And they're just kind of getting ready. They're, uh, everyone's abandoning their post because they're like, okay, this, this thing, society, this is a lost cause now. And I think that's what, what would bring about an apocalypse is collectively everyone just sort of giving up and saying, okay, this is the line right here where this thing is no longer salvageable. I am a selfish person now. I'm not going to try to prop this up. The rest of you guys who want to try, you know, keeping this going, you know, we can try to be a society. You guys are meat now. I'm going to be okay over here with a pile of guns and food. Uh, good luck. Bye. And it's that point where people just give up that society collapses and it happens very quickly. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that seems to be what Romero's this film in particular is 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 about more than anything else. You know, I mean, it's it you're you when you're younger, you get distracted by the the, the sheer amount of gore that goes on, and and you know, watching. I mean, people Night of the Living Dead isn't all that gory, really. Uh, it's it was it's you know, and it's this movie where people are just getting rendered and turned into pulp. That is, and in full color, that is really so just like, whoa, oh boy. But yeah, the, 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 the terrifying notion is that, yeah, society does break down. And so the chaos that's, that's in those opening scenes. And I, I really think it's brilliantly, the, the movie really is brilliantly uh, opened. It's just everything is chaotic and you don't know who any of these people are. I mean, we're introduced to uh, Galen Ross's character, but really not sure who she is exactly. We're not even sure that she's the main character. Uh, it, it really does put you in a kind of just, it drops you in the middle of this, what the hell is going on? And you don't really ever get a sense of anybody who's in charge or anybody that's, you're, you're almost looking for the movie itself or someone to take the lead and be the lead character in the movie. And that never really happens. I think that's emblematic of the situation, which is I think everybody is waiting for somebody to sort of take charge and fix this. And it's that realization that, oh my God, nobody is going to fix this. I can't wait here anymore. Uh, I better grab what I can. And that's the decision of uh, her boyfriend, Stephen, who everyone calls Flyboy in the movie, is like, yeah, we're taking the helicopter. I have a friend who's a cop. We're getting out of here. As he says, somebody has to survive. We're going to survive. And we need to leave now. And there's even that realization with the other SWAT team, Peter, uh, SWAT team guy, Peter, who comes along with them. When they say, oh, we can go here, there's a hospital, we can have help. And then he's just like, no, that's not going to happen. You know, oh, well, I've got a permit for this helicopter. Oh, we're doing traffic reports? Let's face it, we are thieves and bad guys. That's what we are. We, we signed on for this. We stole this stuff, and we're on our own. And it's that realization. Nobody quite wants to hit that point where they just sort of acknowledge, 
even after the apocalypse is going for a while, nobody wants to acknowledge the ugly reality of what you have to become to survive in this world, that we're not where we were. And I guess that's always a theme in these sorts of movies of how bad do you have to be to survive and how bad are you willing to let yourself become? Do you have to become sort of the paranoid lunatic that, say, Rick Grimes becomes in later seasons and issues of The Walking Dead? And once you get to that point, can you pull yourself back from it? But I think the real scary thing in this movie is not necessarily the gore. It's not necessarily the fact that people are capable of doing awful things to each other, either through direct violence or through just neglect, that I'm just going to lock myself up here in this shopping mall, surrounded with all this stuff, knowing that there are people outside that are being eaten to death, people that are starving to death, being barricaded in their apartment, people who are going to die terrible deaths. I might be able to do something about that, but screw them. I got mine. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to take that risk. I, you know, I'm here. And making that conscious decision of going, no, I'm not going to help anyone. I'm not going to prop up or try to fix what's being broken. I'm just going to deal with me and my group of people now. And I think it's that selfishness that, that really kind of breaks everything. Uh, I guess mixed with the fact that there are some really horrible, ugly people in real life that would jump at the chance to suddenly be able to kill with, you know, pure license. Like, at the beginning of the movie, the two SWAT guys are introduced, uh, Peter and Roger, when they've been sent to... It's like a raid that, I guess, disguised as a humanitarian mission that they're yeah. supposed to go into... A minority, a poor housing complex, like a project, and get people out of there. They're supposed to get the dead that they've been piling up in their basement, that they haven't handed them over to the authorities for destruction, because again, these are their friends and relatives. They don't want to hand them over, they've just been putting them into the basement. And Roger actually says to Peter at that point, What, you know, why do these people keep these things in here? And he just goes, because they still believe there's respect in dying. And it, there's one of the cops just goes ape shit. He's just this racist asshole. Right, yeah. He just starts he... opening fire. Oh, God. He just starts murdering minorities. Until finally he gets taken out by, by Peter, who just shoots him in the back. And it's just this point where I guess he makes the decision, yeah, we can't fix this. There's too many people like him with guns that are supposed to be here to protect, but they're just here to kill. That whatever job they, they had as a police officer, that is gone now. It's kind of weirdly prescient looking at a lot of the issues of racial tension and police violence in recent years. But watching that with that kind of context in the back of my head made it all the more chilling. Yeah, you feel like that guy has been waiting his whole career to be able to just do that and use the words that he uses and shoot who he shoots. And now it's just like, oh, great, these zombies have given me a perfect excuse to be able to do all this stuff I've been wanting to do. Yeah, you could just shoot a random person and go, ah, they were a zombie. Ah, they were a zombie. They just happened to all be black and Puerto Rican, but they were a zombie. <laughs> and who's even going to punish him? There's no structure that you can go to to report this guy. There is no internal affairs anymore there's no police force anymore it's you're basically just a roving gang that were given orders the people who gave you the orders are probably all dead and at this point when you see one of these guys that you knew who maybe he was just the kind of group racist before just get the leash taken off of him you start thinking maybe i should take my chances out there rather than hanging around these guys 
uh, there's this moment where after uh, Roger and Peter go into the basement and they kill all of the zombies down there. Some of them are actually still kind of wrapped in burial shrouds. And this one-legged priest comes out and says, you know, I gave them their last rites. Uh, you're stronger than we are now, uh, so you can do whatever you want. But I have a feeling they're, they're going to be stronger than you soon. And he just kind of hobbles out. And this does something that I don't think I've seen in a zombie movie in a long time, especially uh, recent, because I think that we as audience members have become desensitized to it as well. But you see the very act of even shooting zombies in the head emotionally impact Roger and Peter. You actually see them kind of bothered by the fact that they have to kill somebody, uh, even if it's an undead person, because you realize that we're so used to seeing zombie fiction that a lot of zombie movies just kind of skip past the initial horror phase of a dead person getting up to walk at you. They may have a hole in their chest, and there's no way this person can be alive, but they're staggering at you. And no matter how many times you push them back, or no matter how many times you shoot at them, but not in the head, they just keep getting up. Uh, you see that kind of you know, tear at them to the point that later in the movie it does become easier for them. But it's, it's a sense of just the fact that it's not just the fear of violence being done to you that kind of eats away at you and makes you something else, but the act of being able to have to knowingly and consistently do this to other people that don't look like, you know, monsters. They're not orcs or anything. It's just like some guy. It's like one of them is like a kid in a, in a baseball outfit who must have gotten bit somewhere at Little League or something. It's, <laughs> it's little things like that. It just looks like a person. And the movie doesn't let you off the hook by not having them look kind of pathetic at times. And the act of even doing violence to this pathetic creature that's nothing but instinct is, is kind of interesting. And I don't think we do it a lot in zombie movies anymore. One of the things that I thought was, again, interesting, and this is, this is true of a lot of horror movies cause, because the, the genre is considered somewhat disreputable. They can be a little more bold in their casting in that, you know, the, essentially the main two characters in this woman are a woman and a black guy. And, you know, that's unusual in that you even had a, a black guy as the main character in a, in a major movie, although this was an independent production. And also, this, uh, the woman that Galen Ross plays, Francine, she is not your typical woman in a horror movie. I mean, she's a fairly strong character. Yeah, she starts out the movie kind of as a, a bit of a damsel, where she reacts not as a weak person, but as how a normal person would react if a thing just got up and was crawling towards you. But she does something that separates her from a lot of those other characters that you see in horror movies, which is that she's scared of her own helplessness and makes an active push towards correcting it. That she refuses to stay helpless. That when the other characters, uh, more than any one of them, she sort of accepts her limitations and actually endeavors to overcome them. That she doesn't know how to shoot, I need to learn how to shoot. I need to learn how to fly the helicopter. If something happens to you, we're not all going to die. So I'm going to learn how to do that. And that's where it kind of plays in that the damsel sort of more than anyone becomes her boyfriend, Flyboy or Steven. Because Flyboy, if he's defined by anything in the group, it's by his insecurity. That he's the one guy in the group who, you know, the males in the group, of course, that isn't this badass kind of, you know, tough guy who knows how to shoot and fight. That Roger and Peter are both really badass. And you see these moments where Peter doesn't know how to shoot, but he tries. And he almost gets people killed. 
that uh, Peter is trapped in this hangar, this sort of like office building off an airstrip. And this zombie comes from outside. Peter jumps out there and starts firing at it. And, and there's this moment where Roger, who's, I guess, the most cocky asshole of the group, he's the guy who, I think the effect of all this violence on him is to give him a bit of a death wish and makes him act more and more like a, a macho asshole and a reckless guy who doesn't just risk his own life, but risks the lives of people around him. Just kind of nudges Flyboy out of the way. He sort of takes his rifle, slaps um, Flyboy's rifle out of the way with his smirk, and then just with effortlessly headshots the zombie. And it's all these little moments there where Flyboy is so desperate to be taken seriously as a real man, as part of the group, that frequently he acts incredibly dismissive to his girlfriend, Francine. He acts like more and more of a dick when she asserts herself saying, no, I deserve to be part of the decisions. I deserve to be able to eventually shoot. Um, Flyboy immediately starts getting really petulant about it. And it's Peter, one of the SWAT guys, who I think the, you know, the African-American main character, who is the most rational and even, even handed about it. And is like, no, she's right. You know, this is something we have to do and saying, you are going to be part of the decisions, but you're not going out now until you know how to handle yourself. And then you can come out with it. And she sort of accepts that because he treats her with the sort of respect that her boyfriend doesn't. Right. And I think it's really kind of interesting to watch these characters sort of evolve that Peter is sort of the ideal guy that he's really strong, but he's not a bully. And you see Roger kind of become, I guess you could say he's the sort of the PTSD character who does not know how to adapt to this world. And sort of becomes a person that does take these sorts of risks and start treating it like a joke, and that's how he gets bitten. Yes. Um, what do you think of the the, the third act uh, with all the bikers showing up? That's the one part of this movie that I, I have a little bit of problem with because it just feels like it takes a hard kind of comedic turn or it gets – I think Romero indulges himself a little in, in a, some of the silliness. I mean there's scene after scene of them – lopping heads off and, and I don't know it, it, that's the one part of this movie that I was like I feel like it breaks the spell a little bit oh you mean like when the zombies actually break open the side of like some bakery and start hitting the zombies with pies yeah yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> there is a pie fight in this movie yeah complete, yeah, I, complete with wacky think, music yeah that's the I think we should talk a little bit about the music too but I think that we spent so much time building this world that they're in that I think he needed to destroy it in some kind of epic way. And that's actually one of the things that I am really impressed with this movie. And it's something that a lot of movies kind of skip past now, which is meticulously building the place that you live, that they spend about 40 minutes clearing out and barricading the mall and turning it into a place that we can actually live out of involving them having to get these trucks to block off the entrances and to lock the doors. How do we uh, move through this place to stop them from coming in and out and be able to kill them from relative safety? How do we actually move around the mall, uh, you know, going through air ducts and all these things, and how do we move it around? How do we make sure that they can't get too condensed around us? And I think the fact that they did such meticulous work sort of necessitates a big explosion of all that work that we built all this stuff and now we have to break it so i guess when i look at the third act of the movie it's kind of like you see these people kind of become not 
soft, but they do become soft. They, they become kind of Scrooge McDucks. They're kind of selfish, kind of wallowing in their wealth. And rather than run for it or simply just hide upstairs and wait it out, they get into that, this is mine. This is mine. We yeah. took it. I'm going to keep it. Yeah, they're stealing kind TVs of vibe and stuff. It. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. At one point, one of the bikers grabs a TV and he goes like, come on, man, what are you going to watch on that? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he just throws it down and hits it with a bat. Right. <laughs> it's just like, there are no broadcasts. What do you want a TV? But I love the fact that their looting instincts are take the TVs, take the TVs, even though they're just an utterly useless, heavy machine at this point. But yeah, it does get silly um, at several points where I think a lot of it is that this, you see these bikers as someone who's maybe perhaps so dehumanized that you know, acts of violence have not only something that are easy for them, but they actually treat it as a joke. They treat the zombies as a joke. You see them play keep away with a zombie. <laughs> you see them just kind of knock the zombie down in a way that uh, isn't really, you know, like, uh-huh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, zombie? Here's a pie in the face. And they're laughing about it. And you get the impression that this is just their average Tuesday, that they go into a place, there's a bunch of dead things walking around, and they tease them and maybe kill them. But again, you get to that same point where these things are dangerous when you allow it to get to that point, when you allow it to, to be something that you forget how dangerous they are, especially when you're surrounded. Like at one point, uh, Peter sees them riding out with all the loot and he has a clean headshot on one of the bikers who's in a, a motorcycle sidecar. And at the last minute, he goes down from a headshot and hits the guy in the back. The guy tumbles out of the sidecar into a bunch of zombies. And he's got a Tommy gun, so you'd think, well, a machine gun. Of course, that's a great weapon to have with zombies. He starts wildly firing, and of course, none of them are headshots, and they eventually just overwhelm him. I think that that was always the thing with zombies, and a lot of later movies have tried to build it up like, oh, we're going to make them run. That'll make them dangerous. I think what makes them dangerous is that one at a time, they're kind of silly and sad, but when there's like a 100 of them, you're not going to kill them all. And it's so easy to become cocky. And you see that happen to the bikers. I mean, it turns into goofiness, but, you know, the tide does turn on them and they do get slaughtered in horrible ways. That's true. That is true. There is it's a, sort of like the joke actually kind of rebounds on them. I mean, it's funny. There is a certain amount of uh, almost, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like security and the fact that the bikers all held together as a family, even after all this. I mean, they're they're terrible people, but I mean, they did at least all hang together. There is something to the, you know, there's a part of it's like, well, at least they all kind of stuck together. That's kind of nice. Yeah, I, yeah, but I guess you're the fact that their leadership body is probably not decided anyway democratically. They probably just like, oh, who can who can do the most violence and is willing to kill? It's like pirate rules. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I they guess act so. like children. There's that part where they get on the radio to try to talk to the folks in the mall, like, oh, hey, there's only three of us. You know, let us in. We don't like people who don't share. And you hear a bunch of the guys can't keep their silence in the background or hooting and hollering over it. Um. These are guys who basically have become just sort of a gang of stray dogs. And they're good at killing. They're, they're kind of monstrous in a certain way that they have no problem just coming in, taking stuff from people, knowing that, you know, taking stuff from people in this world means that person's going to die. If my car gets broken into and they steal my stereo and they steal all that stuff or they get stuff out of my house, my life is going to suck for a while. But I'm probably not going to die. In this world, I would die. 
if I didn't have that stuff because now I have nothing to try to start from square one and I'm not going to get this stuff back. I can't just call somebody to fix the doors on the mall now. I can't get it back to that place where the entire place is open to me. I have that tiny little apartment at the top and all the material goods and the food and all that stuff that I had access to, that's over now. I don't have any of that. And I'm even if I survive this, I'm going to have to move. Um, it's, it's just kind of, that's what kind of breaks you uh, more than sort of anything else is that this is a movie that isn't just about the fear of getting killed. It's not about the bikers or even a fear of the zombies outside because there's a good 30 minutes where the zombies don't really interact with the main characters at all. It's the fact that, oh my God, the apocalypse is boring and it's empty and it's depressing. And that you can be left in this building, this wonderful building that maybe when society was around, you're like, man, if I was the king of this place, I'd be the richest guy in the world. But when there's no other people around and all you have is just material stuff, life sucks. <laughs> and it becomes, it goes from being this place that was this wonderful, like they're practically partying and throwing, you know, they're walking around, they go into the bank inside the mall, they're sort of like, laughing and taking pictures of these big piles of money in front of the security cameras. And they're having fun. The first time that they managed to get to a safe point in the mall in one of those apartment stores, uh, Roger literally slides down the middle of the escalator and is basically like, Wee! and they're laughing. They're laughing it up. By the end, they're just like dead zombie people themselves. All they can do is bicker at each other. And argue about whether they should leave the TV on because there haven't been broadcast in like several days. Just give up. And these things escalate because there's nothing else in their life to, to escalate to that level. And all they do is fight with each other. All they do is just annoyed at each other's presence because they can't go anywhere. They can't see anyone else. There is nobody else. And just the sad realization that this world is irrevocably broken and this is the best life I am likely to have is just depressing as shit. <laughs> it's interesting to think that the original ending was even sort of bleaker. Uh, I guess it depends on your point of view. But the original ending was everyone died. Everyone. Uh, oh, uh, God. Francine gets decapitated by the helicopter. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter dies. And then it was apparently they even shot all that stuff, too. And then Romero, I guess, decided he we. I don't know, got cold feet or whatever, but decided to give it, well, certainly not a happy ending. It's certainly not even probably, I guess, an ambiguous one at best is that they do get away, but where are they going to get away to? I mean, what, what, I mean, they do yeah. mention about how much fuel's in the helicopter. Not much. Well, you know, then we know there really is not too much for, they, they're really not going to go too far. They maybe have one or two guns. They've got a little bit of fuel. I don't know how much food they had packed in that helicopter. It's actually the original ending. Yeah, it's it's depressing because there's that moment where in the movie that we all know that this place is falling apart. Uh, Francine is going up to fly out the helicopter and Peter doesn't want to go with her. He's just like, you know, what's the point? You know, I don't want to go. I really don't. So she kind of leaves without him and she's waiting in the helicopter. And at that point, the zombies, at that point in the real movie, Peter changes his mind, fights his way heroically through the zombies, gets in the helicopter, and they take off together. But in the original one, he stays down there, and they kill him. The zombies kill Peter. 
she takes off. She's she's so horrified uh, in the helicopter by this that she decapitates herself in the helicopter blade. And then the camera actually pans upward, or I'm sorry, tilts upward. I'm going to use my vernacular right to the helicopter blades shortly after she kills herself and is basically saying that even if they had gotten into the helicopter and flown away, they would have run out of gas right away. Oh, jeez. So even if they wanted to, even if they weren't depressed, even if they didn't kill themselves, they were doomed. That is bleak. <laughs> and I can totally see George Romero not wanting to do that ending. And what's see the, what I mean? Right there. That's yeah. that feeling. You're just like, holy crap. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I want to talk about something fun for Halloween. Um, you wanted to talk about the music uh, by Goblin, uh, the infamous Goblin. Yeah. Uh, a progressive rock band who actually manages to make a lot of their music sound like the sort of artificial tinny music that you would hear in a mall. Sort of a rock version of Muzak. And the fact that the lead song of the movie is essentially a polka theme as the zombies are <laughs> staggering around the mall, it's kind of wonderful. Yeah, it's great. I I love it. It's just so cheery and you just see this the corpse of a building just being completely overrun by again the images that sort of he's saying something about what these malls really are which is these mindless people shuffling around surrounded by stuff not really thinking or having any sort of organic real experience with this fake happy music playing in the background just kind of shuffling around shuffling around mindlessly I guess if, uh, I was about to say, if they remade Donut Dead, which, of course, they did, but I guess if they remade it in, yeah, yeah. in, in 2015, it would not be a mall anymore because those just are not in our vernacular. I guess it would be uh, everybody would hold up at a Target or a Walmart. I guess that would be the modern-day equivalent of, of where people would go for <laughs> supplies. Maybe an Amazon uh, a center where they actually send <laughs> stuff out. I bet you Amazon's got lots of stuff. Because that's where malls are nowadays. They're on the Internet. So yeah. It's a lot harder to uh, to come up with that it's it's sort of weird um the idea of of how much of this stuff has changed since 1978 because i remember the idea of an indoor mall was like science fiction to this 1970s viewers that maybe at the point they saw this movie the first time in a theater they'd never actually been in one of these places they were just sprinkled throughout the country maybe there wasn't one near them but after a while there's one of these malls everywhere there's a multi-story mall in almost every major city that you have to really live out in the middle of nowhere to not have a mall within an hour of you. Yeah. Yeah. But it's weird how that sort of thing has become sort of, I don't know. I guess I wouldn't call it a lost art cause I don't think it was really an art, but I think that, you know, shopping malls might be on sort of their way out that we don't want to walk through a giant labyrinth building of, of stores anymore. And we don't want to have to spend 10 minutes parking anymore. And I, I don't know what we would do in the sort of update. I guess uh, Walking Dead sort of answered our question there. And then they actually, when they barricaded their building, they did it inside of a prison. Mm-hmm. And it sort of becomes that same kind of, you know, analogy for what it is that you're making a point about. That you are protecting yourself, but you're also sort of a prisoner in this building yourself. You can't leave whenever you want because the world is just so broken and dangerous. And in Dawn of the Dead, it's like, I have all this stuff, but no, I'm, I'm still, I'm the one trapped in here. They're not the one trapped outside. 
this is my life now, and everything that I'm ever going to see and do is already inside here with me. And the point where this stuff loses its novelty, that's when it gets really depressing. Uh, but man, I I do love that that sort of prog rock music to it. I think it helps set that tone. Mm-hmm. That there are several times where they set on the music. They're like, well, maybe if we turn all the music way up, it'll help cover the gunshots and the noise we make. And there's just this goofy sort of music playing, and several of these automated things where, do you like candy? If you buy da 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 da, you get a free bag of hard. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of depressing. But you're like, ooh, hard candy. But I, that's what I really kind of love about this movie is just those little touches like that where you, you look at this world and it doesn't give you that same sense of possibilities that a lot of modern zombie movies get. It just makes the apocalypse depressing. <laughs> well, okay. It really uh... does. <laughs> it left me in a mood when I watched I watched it right before going to bed. So... There you go. Oh, boy. Man, I was, I was ready to put my head in a helicopter <laughs> propeller. Before we wrap up. I still enjoyed it. Before we wrap up, do you want to say anything about the remake? I assume you saw it. I did. And I'm guessing you guys can probably guess how I feel about Zack Snyder, who did directed the remake. But I actually think it's Zack Snyder's best movie. I think the fact that it's not tied to a specific character or franchise that he's rebooting or adapting. It's not like we all have a very specific idea of what we want Superman to be. And if he doesn't create that, it feels like a failure has happened. And I think did, but when it's just a concept of the apocalypse um, and a mall, those are the only two concepts that he carried over into his remake. I don't think he did a half bad job. I mean, a lot of the things that I think are sort of his downfalls, you know, the overuse of slow motion and, you know, style over substance He's really actually pretty restrained in this movie. The characters aren't bad. There's a lot of decent performances in it. It doesn't have a lot of the biting social commentary about society that was in the original. But it's a pretty serviceable zombie movie. I mean, it's not bad. It's actually pretty good. It's not something that I would ever put on a top 50 or 100 of the best movies of all time. But it's definitely something that if it popped on cable, I'd really have no problem watching it through. I found with a lot of Zack Snyder, this movie with a lot of other Zack Snyder movies, it starts off great and then kind of gets steadily worse as it goes down. I thought the opening was amazing, set yeah. to Johnny Cash's A Man Comes Around. I thought, holy crap, if we're if the rest of this movie is going to be this sort of like gutsy and innovative, we're really in for something. And it, it doesn't. It doesn't sustain that. But I remember thinking that the, that whole opening segment was just gangbusters. I, I you know, showing you the... the the, the status of the world that we're in set to that very unusual song choice. I thought, Oh my God, this is brilliant. So yeah, I agree. It's probably his best film. Uh, and, and I, and again, I do think you're right that, yeah, when he's, he's adapting characters that you're familiar with, if it's not the version you want to see, then you're mad, but he didn't have to worry about that for Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. There's, there's so many zombie movies out there that all you really see is he's doing a movie. It just happens to have this title which I guess puts some expectations on it because this was the zombie movie at that point. Um, can I talk really quickly about what my absolute favorite character in the entire movie is? Oh, sure. Go ahead. I think this is, it's, I had to look up his name on the internet because they don't actually say it during the movie, which is Dr. Millard Rausch, who is the eye patch scientist oh, yeah. broadcasting from apparently a, 
a barricaded television studio. Uh, you see him every so often throughout the movie. It seems to be the only thing that's on TV is the people who used to work at the studio essentially interviewing this scientist who's telling you exactly what you're going to need to do to survive this new world. And he kind of looks like a cross between like a Bond villain and Fidel Castro and Orson Welles. I think there's some Dr. Strange love in there too. Yeah, there's a lot of Dr. Strange love in there. He's telling them stuff they don't want to hear saying, you know what? We need to nuke the major cities. Let's just, if we want to survive, we're going to have to do some horrible drastic stuff. We haven't exhausted our nuclear payload. Nuke the cities. Kill all of them. There's no way we're going in. Those things are death traps. Two, if somebody gets bitten, just feed them to the zombies. I'm sorry. You know, let's not be, as he says, um, this isn't the Democrats versus the Republicans where we're being in a hole economically or we're in another war. This is more crucial than that. This is down to the line, folks. This is down to the line. There can be no more divisions among the living. And just straight out telling people that you can't see this as your friend anymore. This is a thing. This is pure instinct and it wants to kill you. And there's something about this actor's delivery that makes it incredibly compelling. Even though as an audience in 2015, we know all the stuff that he's saying. He just says it in one, this great voice, again, very Wellesian. But he also says it in just a very matter-of-fact, calm way that is weirdly hypnotic. And those are the parts of the movie that I find myself re-watching more than anything else, is just the, the scientist with the eye patch telling me how it is. Interesting. Do you think he's, I, I, I imagine he survives. That we, we don't follow him, but he, oh, God, he managed, yeah. he survived off somewhere. Or the rest of the people in the studio ate him at some point, <laughs> thinking maybe they killed him, doom and gloom, then they walked outside and were all killed themselves. I mean, who knows? But he stops broadcasting at a certain point. It's a point in the movie where Roger turns into a zombie and they have to put him down. You actually hear Dr. Roche speaking over that, that down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. And that's the last broadcast we have from him. And it's sort of implied that they're not... They're not in that studio anymore. It's probably overrun. And it's the last sign of anything, aside from the bikers, that's outside of this building. The last vestiges of, of civilization are gone now. This is all there is. There's people like us and people like the bikers. Well, happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. oh, well, that's Dawn of the Dead for you. Uh well, like I said, uh, Mike, do you have anything else you want to say about Donald Dead before we sign off? It's actually really good. I know it sounds like something that'll make you want to take a lot of a lot of pain pills and probably put yourself to sleep, but I, I guarantee you it's worth watching because it's kind of where a lot of this stuff that we've become so accustomed to came from. You actually get to see the original source for so many of the zombie tropes and ideas and themes that you see on everything from Walking Dead to Shaun of the Dead. It's really kind of cool to go back to the source. Absolutely. It's a tremendous movie. It's, it's a sort of Bible classic, and it, uh, it deserves all of its praise. Um, all right. Well, said Mike, thanks for coming on to talk about Dawn of the Dead. Uh, we want to know where can people – first of all, I know people we're going to mention where can they find you on the Internet, but I also want you to specifically mention your new podcasting venture as well. Absolutely. I think my main project that uh, myself and my tag team partner, Casey Doran, have been working on for, my God, it's almost three years at this point, 
is a podcast called Radio versus the Martians. We like to bill it as the McLaughlin Group for Nerds. We're sort of a panel discussion show, and every month we hash out a different topic. We actually did a cop episode on zombies, actually one of our first episodes. I think it's episode number three. was all about zombies and zombie fiction. Um, actually, you were on a recent episode that we did, uh, Rob, on the panel talking about Alan Moore's Watchmen. Right, right. I got a lot of really good feedback. So I know there's a couple people that actually tried Watchmen for the first time because of that episode. So you have you have helped people, sir. <laughs> um, so um, the big venture that we do have is that Casey and I have uh, branched out into a spinoff podcast called Podcast La Vista, baby. <laughs> which is a celebration, movie by movie, of the cinematic works of statesman, thespian, and Austrian bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger. And we just did an episode with our good friend Greg Hatcher about The Running Man, which is the 1987 movie where Arnold is put into a futuristic, murderous game show and forced to fight for him his life against crazy costume gladiators. It's really, really insane. As uh, we like to put it, we embrace Arnold for the biceps, the charisma, and the absurd macho bullshit. <laughs> now, I'm guessing by the fact that you're starting with the running man that you're going to be jumping around. So that means at some point, uh, hopefully, you're going to get to Hercules Goes Bananas. Absolutely. We have so much movie. Oh, my God. He's an incredibly prolific actor. And uh, we're doing the show quarterly, but it's going to take us a long time to get to all of it. We're jumping around the timeline. We're kind of giving you an idea of all the different things he's done for different parts of his career. We're going to hit the 80s, which is sort of his, his big point. But we're also going to get into stuff like his stuff he did after being a governor, uh, the stuff he did uh, in the 1960s and 70s when he wasn't a megastar yet, and stuff after he kind of stopped being a megastar. And kind of giving a full sort of range of why we like this guy in a way that's both completely ironic and completely sincere in equal parts and just kind of digging into just the wonderful crazy insanity that is the arnold schwarzenegger film library awesome i look forward to hearing it that ought to be a very very fun show and of course the running man takes place in 2017 so we're almost there yeah almost there <laughs> i don't know if i'm looking forward to that or not <laughs> um so anyway mike thanks so much for coming back and doing the show i really appreciate it uh clearly you really have enthusiasm for dawn of the dead and uh that's awesome so again thanks so much for coming on hey thank you so uh, all right everybody as i said at the top of the show this is a double feature so stay tuned to this commercial announcement and then we will be back with burnt offerings Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a... It all began as a summer vacation. A young family found a beautiful old house. They thought it was the answer to their dreams. Nine hundred dollars a minute. And then it's all ours. But it was the beginning of a nightmare. Burnt offerings. 
starring Karen Black. Have you actually tried to tell me that this house is responsible? Oliver Reed. This house is destroying us. Betty Davis. This house is getting so cold. Burgess Meredith. So you are the people who want to rent this house. Eileen Haggard. God, when he comes alive, tell him, brother. Welcome back to the second half of this uh, Halloween-centric episode of the Film & Water podcast. Uh, with me to talk about 1976's Burnt Offerings, uh, starring Oliver Reed, Betty Davis, and Karen Black, is, I guess, probably the closest we're going to get to an expert on any of the films we've covered uh, here on the show so far. Richard Harlan Smith from Turner Classic Movies' movie Morlock site. Richard, thanks for doing the show. Happy to be here, Rob. Thank you very much. Burnt Offerings is... Uh, on this scale, things fairly obscure. Uh, the plot, you know, we're obviously not going to get too much into the details of it, but basically the Rolfe family, which is Karen Black and Oliver Reed and their son, played by uh, Lee Montgomery, rent a summer home. Uh, it's uh, at a price they cannot turn down, and they uh, they rent it from the this very creepy brother and sister team, Arnold and Roz Allardyce, played by Burgess Meredith and Eileen Heckard, and... Uh, the, uh, the only stipulation to renting this place, which is a real steal, is they have to take care of the Allardyce's mother, who is a shut-in and lives off in this room, and all the family has to do is feed her a couple times a day, and then they have the house to themselves. Obviously, things go very wrong from there. Uh, along with them for this uh, strip, uh, trip is um, the Rolf's Aunt Elizabeth, played by the legendary Betty Davis. And uh, the film is directed by Dan Curtis from Dark Shadows. And uh, the reason I wanted to have uh, Richard on to talk about this movie in particular is because he, as I said, the, probably the closest we have to an expert here, and that he did an audio commentary for the keynote Blu-ray release of Burnt Offerings. And so, like, Richard, why do you what, – what's your familiarity with this movie? Where, how do you come to it, and why do you love it so much? Well, you know, it's funny, the movie's – you're asked to come to bat for when you might not think that you're the guy. Burnt Offerings is a movie that I saw first run, and I saw it back in 1976. I was 15, and I liked it, uh, and I bought it when it came out on DVD for the first time, which was in the early 2000s, 2003, I think. And then uh, not too long ago, I was asked to write a programming article about it for Turner Classic Movies, so I thought, well, okay, I like the movie. I own the movie. I wrote the article. And then I was asked to write to do the audio commentary on the movie, and I thought, well, okay, I've you know I've written the article, I have the movie, I can do an audio commentary, and I went to work on that, and I did that, and when I finished with the audio commentary, I was asked to write an article about the movie for a magazine, and, and it sort of just keeps coming up, and I keep stepping up to bat for burnt <laughs> offerings. So it's not a movie that uh, if I had if you had asked me to pick my my top ten horror movies or my top thirteen. Uh, that it would have appeared there. And I'll be honest with you that having seen the movie at junctures in my life, you know, as a young man, as a man in my, however old I was, uh, in my third, my late 30s when the movie came out on DVD, and then watching it again as a man in my early 50s and a man with a family, it's a very different movie now to me than it was back then and even uh, 12 years ago. And it's a movie that I like 
more now because I think that uh, in addition to being a spooky movie, in addition to being an intriguing movie, in addition to being a movie that's cast with people that I like and made by a guy that I like, Dan Curtis, um, I think that it, it deals with real adult issues in the context of a horror movie, and I think that's pretty rare now. And it made, I think it's always been rare. I think in movies that do that are few and far between. Don't Look Now pops up as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a movie that, uh, it's a movie that you know, the, the horror in that movie, The Thing, for want of a better word, it eats away at the characters. Um, it doesn't really frighten them. Things happen that are disturbing and concerning throughout the movie, but it really is an aggregation of very small things. And the thing that gets the most play is the sort of uh, dissolving relationship between the married couple in the movie, between Karen Black and Oliver Reed. And they're, they're sort of a disintegrating affection for each other, or, or hers for him. And, and the reaction that you see reflected in him that really lures me into the movie now and gives it a depth that it didn't have for me when I was young. Yeah, uh, the first time I remember ever seeing it is back when I worked in a video store in the early 90s, and we had a, a section called Hollywood's Best, which were films were grouped by star. And uh, sometimes films got lumped in, even though the star uh, had a you know transitory appearance in this film. And so Burnt Offerings was in the Betty Davis section. Now, she's got more than a cameo in this film, obviously. She's got a fairly decent-sized role, but it's not a Betty Davis movie. No. A Betty Trips Imagination. And, of course, the box, uh, I remember at the time, made it look like it was like The Exorcist. You know, this was this sort of gut punch of a horror movie. And I think I remember at the time taking it home and being pretty disappointed in it because it's a very slow burn movie. Oh yeah. And as you say, it's not a movie where things are jumping out of you. And I think at the time I just, I just wasn't in the frame of mind to appreciate it. So then when I watched it again, just a couple of weeks ago on, on the blue, on Blu-ray, I appreciated it a lot more. It, it did have, I was like, Oh, okay. I, I was, I felt like I was able to appreciate what the movie was trying to do as opposed to being disappointed into what it wasn't. And that, yes, it is a very, very slow burn, slow disintegration of, of this marriage between these two people and the supernatural forces that are driving them apart. So, you know, it, yeah, it is a movie that it, um, it, it's, you have to sort of like lean into it a bit. I would yes, say. Absolutely. Absolutely. The more you, you know, they, sometimes this gets used defensively uh, as an excuse for why people don't like something. But I think it's true for this movie: is the more you bring to it, the more you'll get back from it. And if you can acknowledge in your life the sort of slow death of certain relationships—not necessarily husband and wife, not necessarily even romantic—you uh, see that reflected in the movie. It becomes, on top of being creepy or or uh, you know disturbing it becomes deeply sad and i think that's a vein that not enough horror movies really try to tap that a vein of sadness because i think that sits at a very core place in human existence and uh too often we go for the superficial emotions of terror you know and panic and those are great uh, don't get me wrong i love those those are great but uh when something really reaches down deep and grabs a hold of that sadness, that's really something. And I tend to really like horror movies that do that. And again, I, I said it before, but Don't Look Now is another one that does the same thing for me in a different way. 
you get the sense from watching this movie, and we're, I don't want to give away any of the ending or anything like that for anybody who hasn't seen it, because I recommend anybody who's listening who hasn't seen it go out and, and find it. So the, the Blu-ray is exceptional in terms of all the stuff that's on it. On top of Richard's audio commentary, there's a whole other audio commentary featuring Karen Black. Uh, yeah, that's that's a tough listen, though, because just about everybody – I mean, Karen Black is gone, and Dan Curtis yeah. is gone, and Bill Nolan's still alive. He'll bury us all. But uh, <laughs> it's and she sounds. I mean, Dan Curtis sounds like a crabby old man in it. I mean, I love him. I love Dan Curtis, but he sounds like an old curmudgeon, and he was. Um, uh, Karen Black just sounds so full of life. I mean, so unlike most of the characters she played in movies, she sounds so sweet on that audio commentary, and it's still hard for me to believe that she's gone. I always felt like she was someone who was sort of that's. She was another one of those actresses that I I don't want to say I grew up on, but I, she was somebody that was certainly in movies a lot when I was a younger kid sure and and i just didn't i don't know i just didn't i think she probably did a lot of stuff that i just didn't see as much growing up i mean and then i've go, as i've gotten older and i've gone back and found some of the stuff i was like oh boy she was in a lot of really great stuff she had a couple of really good years when she went from playing girlfriends and things you know like in cisco pike um to to uh starring in movies like day of the locust and you know, and then on the, on the opposite end of that spectrum, Airport Seventy Five, probably <laughs> the, the quintessence of her Hollywood success, where she was. I mean, if you look at the airport movies, they didn't foreground any one character in their ad art. It was always the plane and then a row of pictures of people. Right, right. Except for Airport Seventy Five, she was the main image of that movie. The stewardess is flying the plane. Karen Black. That was she was big. Yeah, and I think I think if she hadn't had a kid and she was carrying her child uh, in when she was making burnt offerings, I think I think it was her choice to step back. And when she came back, she did not have the same opportunities available to her that she had in you know nineteen seventy three, seventy four, seventy five, seventy six. Yeah, I mean, she was Alfred Hitchcock's last leading lady. That's a right, pretty right. impressive statistic to have. Um, in terms of the cast, uh, I. Can you imagine – I'm trying to picture you know, when they're casting this movie, uh, going out of your way to pick Betty Davis and Oliver Reed for your movie. Doesn't that seem like you're, you're trying to give yourself as much possible – as much grief as, as humanly possible to make a movie? I yeah, mean, that it's was like a ball. two very difficult people, uh, which would be hard to handle either one of them, let that alone was a ball, that, was a, that was a ballsy play on Dan <laughs> part. But I think, it, I think it paid off. You know, so many people talk about – burnt offerings who either haven't seen it or don't remember it well and they tend to fob it off and call it a bomb or they tend to sort of snigger and, and, it, and they t- it's almost as if the they're talking about uh, the, the things that went on behind the scenes as if they were there you know the the the, the fighting uh, amongst all the cast members and as if that has any real has it anything to do with the, the movie you know as a, as a piece of work it, it doesn't you know so what so there were stories about the fighting and the name calling, and there was bad press. So what? Who cares? It's forty years later. Let's talk about the movie that's on the table. And I think they are both excellent. I actually think Karen Black, Oliver Reed, and Betty Davis bring their A games to burnt offerings. And, and in particular, if I had to single out one, I would single out the one you would think was drinking his way through the movie, and that's Oliver Reed. I think Oliver Reed turns in. A, a courageous and, and very heartfelt performance. And I don't think he's ever gotten the credit for that. And I think the fact that he kind of got burned critically for this movie, I, I think he gave up. I think he just was in it for the money after that. Hmm. Now, let's see, I'm not an, 
an expert certainly on on his career. I've seen a bunch of films that he's been in, but the, the, he's kind of playing a fairly I don't know, maybe not milk toast. That's probably not the right word, but a fairly straight head kind of dad figure. That seems pretty cast against type. Yeah, well, he's playing a guy who lives up in his head, and you know, you don't really live that with him in the movie. You sort of take it as read, and then he certainly plays that character. At some point, you have to get into a conversation about how much burnt offerings influenced The Shining. Stephen King has said as much. He said that the uh, the novel inspired him when he was writing. The Shining, and it's a similar story, uh, although Burnt Offerings doesn't focus on the writer dad as much, uh, or, or it burnt, as The Shining does. Uh, so you, you kind of are, you're kind of more with the wife in Burnt Offerings than uh, than you are in The Shining. Uh, but they're similar characters. You can imagine Jack Torrance and Ben Rolfe going off and having a couple of drinks together <laughs> after the school day, you know, before they go home to their families in their crappy little apartments. Um, but it, it's you know, and it's a, it's a character that certainly any writer or any artist can identify with someone who's sort of motivated by not things close at hand but by ideas and and movements and then sensitivity and and so and then in that way he sort of i think he sort of doesn't pick up on clues uh that that might be more readily available to somebody who is more in the moment you know yeah i mean he seems to have uh, difficulty uh, throughout the movie of understanding just how attached his wife is getting to this home. I mean, he, 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 uh, the opening scene after they, they meet uh, the, the Allardyces, and it's, the, we should mention, uh, the, again, I, I said that the Allardyces are played by Burgess Meredith and Eileen Eckhart. I, Burgess Meredith is just, <laughs> he's so fun in this movie. He only has yeah. that one extended scene, but he's so delightfully creepy. That you would just think anyone with any common sense would say, "I'm not writing. I'm not writing a home from this guy. What are you out of your mind?" I mean, there's a he watches the son outside, the the, the Rolf's son outside playing, and Rolf's uh, the, the the young boy uh, David falls off of like a what, like a not a swing set, but he falls off of something. I forget what a he gazebo falls off. or something. A gazebo. That's right, and he hurts himself. Yeah. And and you see Burgess Meredith's character just kind of laugh and think it's funny, and you're like this guy. This guy is really definitely deranged. Yeah, well, that was a that was a, a kind of a cool period in Burgess Meredith's life when he was popping up for ten minutes in this thing and that thing. He was in the uh, the Sentinel. Well, he has a bit more in that. He's in the Manitou. <laughs> He's in Magic. He was making all these, you know, not and you, and as, if you were as if you were my age then, and you were sort of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, you were seeing these things one after the other, and it was kind of uh, it was oh him again, it's the penguin, you know, he's great, I love that guy. Didn't he say that wasn't his piece of advice the same young actor? Would I read that he said literally don't ever turn anything down? I think he said something like there's some quote attributed to him where he's like literally do not turn work down if you well, can get off. I have certainly lived that. You know, wisdom. Any <laughs> as a freelancer. <laughs> um, now you mentioned earlier the, the a book. And I didn't mention that that this is based on a novel, original novel by Robert uh, Marasco. Marasco, Robert Marasco. Yeah, um, he was um, a school teacher. He he taught at the Saint Regis High School. It was a Jesuit high school in Manhattan on the Upper East Side, where I just about where I used to live, East Eighty Fourth Street. I lived on East Eighty Third. And he taught Latin and Greek, and uh, he had written a play, which ran on Broadway for a year, called Child's Play, and it was a big hit. It won like nine Tonys, and then Sidney Lumet turned it into a movie, and uh, and 
what a lot of people don't realize is that actually burnt offerings existed before the play, before Child's Play. Uh, it was a screenplay that Marasco wrote and shopped it around, and it got a little bit of attention, and then that kind of fizzled, and when it kind of went into turnaround, he wrote it as a novel, and then the novel came out in 1973. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that uh, the attention that his screenplay for Burnt Offerings did get around 1969, 1970, uh, was from uh, a writer-director that you would not think of as wanting to do a movie like Burnt Offerings, and that was Bob Fosse. Yeah, that's a. I, I when I saw that factoid, I was like, "Huh?" <laughs> yeah, Bob Fosse. You know, Bob Fosse made his first movie. You know, he wanted to bridge from choreographing and directing on Broadway to doing movies, so he made Sweet Charity with uh, with Shirley MacLaine, uh, and it was a huge bomb. I think um, I'm trying to remember what they spent on it. Something like twelve million dollars, and I think it made back six. So he was, you know, he had almost destroyed the studio that uh, that put it out. That was back, you know, in those days when, like, one movie would completely destroy the studio and then another movie would completely rescue it. I mean, but that was, not, you know, that was 69-70. That was, you know, the, the, the death rattle of the studios. And they were all tipping. They were all on the precipice at that point. So Sweet Charity was a huge bomb, and he, he was desperate for work. And uh, Larry Terman, who was a producer who, who backed uh, The Graduate... And uh, Pretty Poison, you know, with Anthony oh, Perkins. Oh, that, that's a great movie, Pretty Poison. Yeah, uh, he, 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 he got a hold of the script. I guess he bought the first option on Marasco's Burnt Offering script. Um, and I think it was through the, uh, the intercession of Sue Mengers, the, the big Hollywood agent, I think, who repped both Fosse and was involved with Terman. She got the script to Fosse. Fosse wanted to do it, so he got to work. On on the script for uh, for burnt offerings with a, with a plan to shoot it in the summer of 1970, he uh, he worked with Terman. I think they worked together for like three months writing the script. Morasco was at that point going into the run of the Broadway play, so he didn't want anything to do with writing the screen or working on the screenplay, finessing the screenplay. So uh, Fosse w- went to work on it. Worked on it for three months. His friend uh, Stanley Donnan, the film director, said, "This is all. This is awful. Why are you doing this?" I'm like, oh, I got to do something. <laughs> Fosse was very interested in, in the central idea of the story, which is how much uh, how much punishment can one family take to have the home of their dreams, or or you know, fill in the blank. How much can one family take to dot dot dot? And in this case, it was to live in this house that lasted for three or four months. And eventually, and he even scouted locations, actually he and Tony Walton, the production designer, uh, scouted locations on the East coast. Of course, then it would have been an East coast production. Uh, and then, but then it fell apart. And, and it, as it happened, Fosse went on to cabaret and won the Oscar and, and his career was revived. And then burnt offerings went into turnaround and then Morasco wrote the novel and that thing kicked around. And then the, it gets even more interesting after that. If you know the history of that, uh, of that novel and, and what came of it. Have you read the novel? Yes. What, did you like it? I liked it. It's a good, it's a good book. It's, it's similarly deliberate in its pacing and it has even more detail in it than the, than the movie does. There's a whole section that takes place in New York before they go and see the house uh, which actually Curtis shot and then cut it wisely, I think, because it's already a long movie as it is. There, I mean, there's stuff in the book that um, 
shows you, I think, that, that Marasco growing up was a monster kid. There, he makes references to horror movies, classic horror movies. They even make reference in the novel to Davy owning uh, one of the – do you remember Frankenstein loses his pants? That yeah, kind of the little yeah. toy, yeah. Yeah, I think he and Aunt Elizabeth both have one in the book. There's a mention of that. And they mention, I mean, they mention Dracula and Frankenstein by name, as I recall. So it's kind of cool. It's kind of like a little, you know, tipping his hat to the classic monsters. Uh, that's none of that's in evidence in the movie, but it's a fun read. And there's, you know, it's a, it's a profound read. If you're sensitive to what it's talking about beneath the story, which are, you know, those themes that are there in the movie too. But it's also, it's also a story about people, um, unfulfilled people who who don't really know why they're here, where they're going, what they want, and how people like that are just completely vulnerable to outside influence. And of course, you know, those out and it's true. I mean, those outside influences could be anything from corrupt politicians to uh, to criminals uh, or, you know, malevolent spirits. And that, that's sort of a that's sort of a theme that's in evidence in the exorcist as well. We often talk about the Exorcist being this game changer that you know because of its huge you know special effects scenes you know, destroyed you know any hope of of, of subtle character based horror in, in American filmmaking. But there's a really great depth in that movie too, and also great sadness about the kind of um, loss of open communication between people who are supposed to love one another. I mean that's that's the well from which the horror in the Exorcist rises, and I think there's a there's a note of that in Burnt Offerings as well. You have uh, this married couple, and they've grown apart, probably because Ben, the husband, is more interested in his career, or more interested in the things that make up his career, you know, literature, study, intellectual pursuits, than he is in his wife, who is kind of a she's not a simpleton, but she's simpler. She's more of the moment, and she, in her frustration and her lack of fulfillment, sort of becomes obsessed with antiquing and buying perfect little pieces. And, of course, that's a, a tendency of her personality that the Allardyce house exploits, and that's you know where the horror arises from in that story. Uh, one of the things that I felt like that I, I saw in the movie, and, again, it's all very subtle and you know, for most of it, it's not a movie that jumps out at you, is that the kid, their son, uh, it seems almost like, um, like they're almost indifferent to him. Uh, maybe well, not uh, indifferent, but just like they don't seem to focus a lot on the child when in other movies or in real life you would be so focused on your, your, your child. And, and, and he seems almost like a peripheral character here. That was the 70s, my friend. I mean, I, I was a... <laughs> I think uh, Lee Montgomery and I are about the same age. I think he was playing a little younger in that movie than he really was. Um, I don't. I think in the book, Dave is supposed to be twelve. I don't remember if they say how old he is in the movie, but I, I think he in real life is a little bit older than that. But yeah, you were left to your own devices a lot back then. I mean, we've really changed our, our parenting model in this country when it's become sort of obsessively overprotective and over monitoring, but. I mean, I used to go off by myself wherever. If we were home, I would be off in the woods. I'd be down in the town by myself. My parents didn't know where I was. I was just expected to come home for dinner. Right. And I did. If we were on vacation, I'd be off on the beach walking for miles by myself. And 
when I could drive a car, you know, I'd take the car and go off by myself. And there was no, you know, where are you? What are you doing? Let us know where you are. It's like, just show up for dinner. <laughs> yeah. You know? it, it, yeah. It, it's, I mean, the, the, it's, it's, you know, the, the, and the movie doesn't, um, pull, again, I'm not going to give anything away, but the movie doesn't pull his punches about the, the, the son becoming a victim to all this as well. I think maybe movies nowadays they wouldn't go for that. I think that might seem a little, a little nasty, a little too nasty. It is nasty, isn't it? I, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's one of those things that I watch. I watch the ending of that movie now, and I won't say anything in particular. But uh, I watch the ending, and I and I there's that part of me. It's like when I watch King Kong. I always hope it will end differently, <laughs> and it never does. And it's just wow, you know that's that's rough. One of the things that I, I felt like I noticed when I was watching, and I've watched it a couple of times too since I got the, I watched it with your commentary, and I watched the other commentary, and then I watched it a couple of times straight through, is that um, again for a movie that um, a lot of this takes place, you know, during the day and yeah. during bright sunlight. I mean, it's not you know for a movie about a creepy house, there isn't a whole lot of scenes of them skulking around at night in deep shadows. It's there's a scene in a pool that's pretty horrific even though it's right. you know it, it looks like a vacation photo. Yeah, you know, that movie resonated with me uh in a lot of ways uh and I don't want to uh to say too much about my personal life, but uh you know, a lot of the really unhappy memories of my childhood, and, and there were many happy memories too. I, I don't want to come off like a Dickensian character, but the, the stuff that kind of haunts me now, after the fact, most of it took place by daytime. Daytime, nighttime was a time for for terror. Daytime was a time for slow, gnawing horror and dread, and the anticipation of nighttime. Um, and I and I think there's one of the things I relate to with that movie is the fact that most of the really bad stuff happens in in broad daylight and because it's a story. It's not a story about go. It's not a ghost house. It's not a story about evil demons that come out. You know, like don't be afraid of the dark. They scuttle out of the furnace. You know, and, and grab you by the ankles. Right. The house isn't it's built a, on an Indian burial ground or no. anything like that. It's uh. It's a story about. The corruption of feelings and attitudes that are already there. I mean, the the Rolfs bring into that house the the raw materials of their own destruction. You know, they're not they're not blindsided, um, or we, or we shouldn't be blindsided. We we can kind of see those schisms and cracks in, in the foundation of their family, and uh, the house just exacerbates what's already there. And so it's really not surprising. And you know, it's the movie is about. Uh, Two or the story is about book and movie are, are about uh, particularly in regard to the character of Marion, the character played by Karen Black. She really does forge a kind of a almost a Faustian pact. You know, she she is constantly doing the math in the book. She's more self-aware in the book than in the movie, um, but it doesn't make a difference in the book, and she winds up in the same place. She does the math, she does all the figuring, and she still makes all the wrong choices. And and, and and I kind of like the fact that a horror movie puts that back on the characters rather than trying to, you know, come up with some... Nowadays, it seems like horror movies all want to find the ultimate villain, you know, the mm. ultimate demon. And it just gets sillier and sillier. And now it's always, you know, some CGI thing with blacked out eyes. And I, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. 
it's seeing, you know, if you've, if you've ever been around um, adults who, like, who drank, and, and without naming names, you know, my parents were involved in the Board of Education in my small hometown, so nobody drinks like teachers, you know, and school administrators. <laughs> seeing those people change, like, in a moment, when they've had that one drink too many and their personalities change, uh, that's kind of one of the creepy things to me about burnt offerings, and you see that you see that mostly in the character of Marion, but then of course in that pool scene where Oliver Reed tries to drown Lee Montgomery, that's almost like something I would have seen in the '70s at a at a you know at a party at a cocktail party with all my parents' teacher friends. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. No, it was you know again, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf is like watching a home movie in in some ways. I mean, we were we weren't as Tony as that, but uh, you know, some of those parties could get rough, and there was violence. There was and there was stuff and all, around a pool too. You know, there was always a pool because it was the seventies. Everybody had a pool, even in New England. I didn't live in California. I didn't live in California then. I live in California now. But back then it was New England. But everybody's all the homes still had pools, and you know, fights would break out. And, I was at a party one night, and I was, you know, young. I was not even ten, I don't think. And one woman took a broom handle and smacked her husband across the head with it. Jeez. I remember his glasses flying off and breaking. And there was a shoving match at another party, and, and like a bunch of men went flying into the pool. And I remember one guy went flying against the side of the pool and cracked his ribs. And it was extreme. That wow. was, you know, that was my childhood. And I, and I think. For me, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, that my sort of interest in horror, which happened around the same time, I got interested in horror movies around the same time, it gave me a kind of a structure to understand why good people can go bad or can behave badly, or can turn bad. Uh, it gave me a sense of there being a, you know, a code or a, you know, the, the sort of the, uh, the schematics of myth gave me a way of handling all of that very frightening information that I was getting from my from my uh, my adult figures. That's interesting that you say that because it's uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, a theater over here was playing The Shining uh, at midnight on a on a screen and I took someone to it who had never seen it before and is uh, significantly younger than I. And uh, again, like you talk about, not getting too much into the details of somebody's personal life, but. There were things about them, that movie structure in terms of uh, Jack Torrance's alcoholism and what that movie's really about uh, that I felt that he could maybe get some, you know, pick some things up on. And and uh, after it was over, I, I didn't want to press too hard about, you know, hey, did you get it? You know, I don't want to get into that. But I always feel like, you know, maybe that maybe that movie will help, you know, could could help give him some structure like you just like you just mentioned about seeing some of the things that that can sort of happen when you have a ro- an element in your family that could be a bit on the destructive side and you know if you can uh, you know of course you know set aside all the horror trappings of it all the supernatural stuff you can see what what's really going on in these stories and and sort of get and appreciate it which is why I've always loved horror movies you know since I was a a, a little kid even though I didn't grow up with any sort of real kind of chaos and that kind of thing but I always felt that they were you know the best of them were yeah obviously make you they they helped channel your your fears not opposed not they didn't cause them they gave them a form I mean there's nothing worse than formless fear because how do you how do you work with that you know uh, horror movies or or horror stories or, or myth they gave you they give you uh, 
you know, patterns and, and formulas. And even if it leads you nowhere, even if it doesn't help, ultimately, it gives you something to do. And that's, you know, busy work. If you, you know, I do a lot of, you know, survival training um, and a lot of uh, disaster preparation. And keeping yourself occupied is key to developing and maintaining a positive attitude in a disaster scenario. And, you know, there were, my childhood was in many ways a disaster scenario. So, in, no, not my early childhood. And like, and I, I had a very split childhood, ideal early childhood, complicated, you know, pre-teen and teen years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that horror movies gave me a little bit of homework to help me through confusing times. I will say, I do want to say on the far end of it that everybody turned out okay. Right, we, my family, we, we were not the Rolfs. Okay. We don't like each other. We get along really well. You know, everybody, everybody has a life to work through, and we sometimes make you know very poor choices. And as long as everybody gets along at the end of it, then it's okay. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, modern horror movies, you mentioned them briefly. Uh, there seems to be at least some some pockets of, of horror movies a, a return to the sort of slow burn. Storytelling. I mean, I would think like the House of the Devil had a well, lot of that. Well, it's funny you mentioned House of the Devil because when you were talking about when you're sort of laying out the thumbnail plot of Burnt Offerings, I was thinking to myself, some you know twenty or thirty year old is going, "That's House of the Devil." Right. Uh, but I mean, House of the Devil and It Follows, I thought had a lot of that very slow burn. Do you think that Burnt Offerings could? I don't. Well, I'm not going to say. Do you want to see it remade because it would probably not be as good? But I mean, do you think Burnt Offerings would be ripe? for being remade now in that new kind of climate? I mean, I think if you, if you handed it off to the the other side of the, the, the aisle, it would just be people jumping, you know, CGI, you know, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, shadow beings jumping out from under beds and stuff. But if you handed it to somebody like who did, Ty West or, or uh, I'm blanking on the name of the guy that made It Follows, but if you handed it off to one of those guys, do you think it would maybe could, could go be successful? I, you know, I guess if they did it, for very little money and didn't put known people in the movie. And uh, I, you know, I don't think nowadays things have gotten so Baroque now. It's, you know, one of the examples is uh, I mentioned earlier, don't be afraid of the dark was a great lean uh, 1973 TV movie about a couple that moves into a house and strange goings on. Uh, John Newland directed it um, with, you know, a, a economy because it was a TV movie, no muss, no fuss. And I, I, been thinking about that movie for 40 years you know they remade that a couple of years ago right uh, Guillermo del Toro, del Toro did the produced it and I really just thought it was a completely you know overdone twice baked unnecessarily complicated mess that didn't move me or scare me it just irritated me and I think sometimes they take something simple and try to turn it into something a little bit more amusement parky and uh, I don't go for it some people may um I think there have been some remakes recently that have that have been okay, but uh, I, you know, in my old age, I uh, I tend to like simpler pleasures. I don't, you know, I don't like the eighteen different false endings that every horror movie has nowadays, and I, you know, I sort of tend to like uh, a little bit more of that old economy that uh, seems to have gone out of fashion. To answer your question more succinctly, maybe, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I I feel for these guys that 
do well with a low budget horror movie uh, because I think uh, on the one hand they've realized their greatest dream right away and then they have to spend the next few years working with the studios and, and being jerked around and, and being put on projects that, that aren't stuff that they develop themselves and that's you know that's a that's a depressing way to live unless you're into it I mean, there are some directors now who seem to just go from movie to movie and are happy to do that and I tend not to like those movies though what was the uh, last great horror movie that you saw? I don't mean well, to put you on the spot. That's a tough. Well, you know, I I, I, may, I may be uh, accused of cronyism here, uh, but uh, the the one that pops into my mind is one that was made by a friend of mine, uh, Nicholas McCarthy, is a movie called The Pact, which came out in 2012, and it was a ghost story. But again, it was very small. It was very. It felt regional and local and small scale, and it didn't overstep itself. It didn't try to work outside the box, which makes it sound, you know, stodgy and, and middle class. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. It just, it, it understood itself, and it stayed true to itself, and, you know, I really appreciated that. And I got some nice, you know, goose flesh watching it, which is very, it's very hard to scare me. I lived in New York for almost 20 years. Uh, <laughs> I've lived in L.A. for over 10 years. You know, I've lived in the scariest cities, uh, so it's very difficult to scare me, and it really has to be a, a very cunning combination of a couple of things to really get under my skin. And uh, the pact worked for me. And if, if people haven't seen it, I urge them to go out and rent it. Right. It says Katie Lotz is in it, right? The star. She's, yep. She's currently on uh, Arrow, I believe. Yeah. She. Uh, she. There's a sequel too that that I watched about half of and thought it wasn't bad, and then I just stopped. And that's you know. <laughs> That there's a lot of horror like that nowadays. Even if I think there's value in something, sometimes I'll get to a certain point and say, you know, I just don't care. <laughs> you know, I wasn't turned off. I wasn't scared away. But at this point, I've just stopped caring. Right. So. Just indifferent, right? More than yeah, yeah. Else, so. And it, maybe that says more about me than about the movie itself. I don't know. Well, I will have to track that down because that's – I would take that as a recommendation. That sounds very interesting. So, um, so yeah, I think that's pretty much going to do it all for, do it for, for Burnt Offerings. Um, like I said, Richard, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, for anyone who wants to read more of your writings, where can they find it? www.moviemorlocks.com, the official film blog of Turner Classic Movies. Uh, I, I am now the Turner Classic Movies underground guy, so I write exclusively about – what cult movies will be playing each week on TCM. I'm always doing some damn audio commentary or another. <laughs> yeah. Look for me there. Yeah. There, there's, there's a bunch out there that you can get with Richard talking and they're, they're really a lot of fun. So I will list some of them on the show notes. So Richard, thank you so much for doing the show. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I hope you had fun. I did. I had lots of fun. And that is going to do it for this Halloween double feature episode of the Film and Water podcast. I really appreciate Mike and Richard coming on to talk about uh, their respective films. And I also appreciate all my previous guests. We've been sort of doing uh, a lot of Halloween themed shows. I decided a couple of uh, weeks ago that we're going to be trying to do this show weekly, which means we're going to have to have a lot more guests. And I appreciate everybody who's come on, uh, particularly Tim Wallace, who talked to me about uh, Freaks. Max Romero, who uh, covered Psycho with me. Chris Franklin, who uh, did Mad Monster Party. Luke Dobb, who, of course, covered Murder by Death. And then finally, Derek William Crabb from the Fan Holes Podcast to talk about Creepshow. I thank them all for coming on and doing these Halloween-themed uh, shows. I really appreciate it, and we've had a lot of fun. So, again, and I hope uh, you enjoy the show. As always, if you want to send us a message, email us at firewaterpodcast.net. Please follow the Tumblr, which is Pod 
over on Twitter, please uh, give us uh, a follow, and uh, we really appreciate that. You can keep up what's going on with the show. And uh, I guess that's pretty much going to be it. I said, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Until then, that's a wrap. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting. It's been quite a morning. If your busy schedule permits, would you mind taking the mirror out? It's cracked. Ain't no anything cracked around here. Old fool. Grouchy old bastard.